All right, well, if you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. Deuteronomy, chapter 5. If you're using one of the red pupils, red pupils, I made a word there, pupils, red pew Bibles, you can actually find that on page 150. This morning we're going to be picking back up in our study of the book of Deuteronomy, starting in verse 12 and then studying through verse 16. So, Deuteronomy 5. Verses 12 through 16. Does the name Truett Cathy mean anything to anyone? Okay. We'll find out how many of you are been blessed to spend time in the South. All right. Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A. You all know what Chick-fil-A is, right? Okay, there we go. All right. Praying that one will come to Sheboygan one day. But the founder of Chick-fil-A, when he opened his first restaurant in 1946, he made a decision that he would close the restaurant each Sunday so that he and his employees could rest and worship. Now, almost 60 years later, Chick-fil-A continues to honor that decision, even after Truett Cathy, or after his, his passing, even though in doing so, it loses an estimated $1 billion in revenue every year. If you go to Chick-fil-A's website you can find the official explanation for why they do not have their restaurants open on Sunday. They explain that Kathy's own experience working in restaurants that were open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, taught him the value of having Sunday off. But Kathy's own explanation is more direct. In his book, by his own account, he writes that 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 decision was actually a way to honor God, to show loyalty to him, and to trust that God honors those who honor him. Now, Truett Cathy's faith to make a decision like that is remarkable because no one else, especially in the the fast food chain industry, is doing that. And yet Chick-fil-A actually currently ranks as the third most successful fast food restaurant, with some businesses, business experts actually explaining, going so far as to say that their decision to be closed on Sunday has been a direct contributor to that success. Now, confession time, I have certainly craved a chicken sandwich on a Sunday, and I have groaned a little bit inside, realizing I was going to have to settle for something else. But I am glad to have examples of people like Truett Cathy, who put honoring God before their own personal profit, who make gutsy decisions to honor God and to do something that no one else is doing. And I have known many friends who have actually benefited directly from that, friends from seminary and, and who were working in, and going to Bible college who knew that they could support their families and still trust that they, could, they would have Sunday reserved for them to go and worship God because of that. Now, Chick-fil-A says they didn't invent the chicken, the chicken only the chicken sandwich. And even though the company has become well-known for the way it's closed on Sunday, they didn't invent the idea of resting from work once a week either. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at the principle behind Truett Cathy's decision, continuing to make our way through the ten words of the ten commandments that God spoke to the nation of Israel at Horeb at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, We're looking specifically this morning at the commands that God gave Israel regarding the Sabbath 
and the way that children are called to honor their parents. Now, there's a unique connection between these two commands as I've been trying to think about, okay, how do I preach through the Ten Commandments? I don't. I feel like I'm leaving things out by not preaching each one sermon per commandment, but we'll never get out of Deuteronomy if I do that. So uh, we're actually going to, there's a unique connection that I really want to bring up for you, which I actually think is very vital for helping us to understand how our faith in God is intended to invade every aspect of how we live. You see, we are, we are constantly under barrage by this nagging desire in our flesh to want to have and maintain control. But faith in God requires us to submit ourselves to Him. It means trusting God and obeying Him, delighting in Him and seeking Him as our ultimate treasure. These two commands are aimed specifically at helping God's people live that reality out. So I'm excited to get into this with you this morning. Um, And we're going to take a deep dive into some really good stuff. So um, if you would, let's begin by reading our text. Please stand with me as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning of verse 12 and reading through verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days... You shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner that is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. These two commands, as I already mentioned, share a unique connection with each other besides the fact that they're both part of the Ten Commandments. For one, they stand out from the other commandments because unlike the other commandments, they are actually positive commands telling us to do something rather than to not do something. Secondly, both of these commands are are centered on helping us to understand what it looks like to live by faith in a right relationship with God. This is not just moral code. This is covenant living. This is the way that faith responds to God, playing itself out in our day-to-day experience in this world. It takes faith for you to cease doing your work. And it takes faith to honor your father and your mother as God has commanded you. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is to teach us how to glorify God by loving Him and doing what He commands. 
The Ten Commandments flesh out what it means to love the Lord your God with your, all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all that you are, with your the very best ability, and also to love your neighbor as yourself. Those two priorities, which Jesus says fulfill, or which in which the whole law and the prophets are fulfilled, are what bring together these two commandments we're looking at today in a special way. So as we look at what God says about the Sabbath and about his command to honor parents, we're seeing something about the way we honor him and also the way we honor those who God has appointed in our lives as right authorities. Now these are clearly two different commands. I don't want to confuse them in any way. I want to handle them accordingly, but I also want to help you just see these connections that are tying the commands together. And so that brings us to our main idea, which is simply this. Honor God by resting in God. Honor God by resting in God. So I have two points for you this morning. Don't get too excited though, because my first point is really long. So. First, we're going to be looking at this first commandment of what it means to rest in God. Second, we have this second command of honor your parents. What we're going to be looking at in this as we, as we study what it means to rest in God, we're going to see what the Sabbath rest has to teach us about trusting in Christ. That's, that's what we're looking at this morning. And then second, if we look at this command to honor your parents, we want to see that the way you treat your parents has something to say about the way you're actually honoring God. So two key commands that are being implemented in our own lives. We want to look at what our relationship with these things is and what God's plan and purpose is for them. So let's begin by looking at this command about resting in the Lord. A rest, it is one of the most important themes that runs through the Bible across all the scriptures. We see it first pop up in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which says that God, on the seventh day, after he finished the work which he had done, that he rested, and that he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. We see it again in Exodus 20, and we see in our passage today in the institution of the Sabbath for the nation of Israel. We see it, we saw it when we were studying the book of Joshua as the people entered the promised land, and at the end they had, the land had rest. And in the New Testament, we hear how Jesus declares how he gives rest to, who, to all who are weary and heavy laden who come to him. Finally, we learn from Hebrews about a future rest that all who are in Christ will receive in his presence when he makes all things new. So there's a theme of rest running from the very moment of creation all the way to the new creation and our hope. So this is a big, big theme. And I hope to, I hope as we look at what the Sabbath is to kind of bring that out, that the, the command regarding the Sabbath is specifically dealing with this important theological concept of rest. So as we look at this third command, or as at the fourth, depending on how you distinguish the order of what we typically refer to as the first two commandments, it's important for us to keep this theme in mind. This is much, much bigger about whether or not you do any work on a Saturday or a Sunday. This is a command to actively rest in God. It's a command to trust God. It's a command which prepares us ultimately to respond in a right way to Jesus. 
And that's really what I want to bring to your attention as we look at verse 12, where Moses reminds the people how the Lord said to them, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Now, as we look at that first command, I just want to, I want you to notice first and foremost how this is stated positively. Up to this point, it has been, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. And now we have, you shall. Observe. Keep it holy. This is a kind of rest that isn't passive. It's active. It's intentional. It's more than just remembering that there is a Sabbath. It's taking steps to honor God in how you rest. And in verses 13 through 15, Moses explains to us what that actually looks like. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, which means that on it you shall not do any work. So, God, as he called Israel and set them apart, actually gave them a pattern of work which matched the, only, the, the pattern which he worked in creation. God made the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. He completed his work, and he took pleasure in what he had made. And here, he is calling Israel as his holy people to conduct their own lives after the same pattern of what he himself had done. The fundamental thing that defined Israel as a nation was their relationship with God. They bore his name upon themselves. They were his people. He was their God. Part of taking the Lord's name on themselves in a worthy manner meant reflecting his holiness in the way that they lived. And we see that that's then applied to the way they worked and the way they rested. So we can see this in the way that God has commanded the people to observe the Sabbath, to observe the seventh day as a Sabbath, as a holy day, a day that was free from labor and reserved for worship. A day in which God's people turned their eyes from the common, from the day-to-day task to enjoy and look up to the heavens and to enjoy the splendor of God. It is really easy for us to read this command and to take it as a negative. Oh, well, I just I can't work on this day. That's how the Pharisees, that's how the scribes and the elders in Jesus' day treated it. They were consumed with prohibitions. Where when we look at this command, we see it's actually stated positively. They were consumed with rules that govern how far a person could walk on the Sabbath, whether or not you could heal on the Sabbath, even whether or not God worked on the Sabbath. But as we look closely at what God actually told Israel, we can see that while the Sabbath did hit the, hit the pause button on the work week, it had a much deeper purpose. It bound Israel to God in a special way by teaching them to rest in the Lord and not to trust, ultimately, in the works of their own hands. This command was never meant to be a burden on God's people. It was given to relieve them of their burdens by causing them to rest and rely on God who provides. Part of the controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees over the Sabbath had especially to do with this fact. Jesus defied their faulty understanding of the purpose of the Sabbath. 
After the after the Pharisees, the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus' disciples for plucking heads of grain and eating them as they went, because Chick-fil-A was closed. There, that actually wasn't in my notes. Jesus tells them the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given by God to be a blessing of His rest. And the fact of the matter is, you know this, it is hard to let go. Whenever we go on vacation, it takes me a solid two days to finally, like, stop thinking about what's going on while I'm not there. Okay? It's hard to cease from your labors. In some ways, it's easier just to keep working. Because when you're not, you're thinking about all the things that are piling up, or all the things you can't affect right now. It's hard to let go. Work, whether it's work in our jobs or work at home, it's always there. It's always present. There's always something to be done. And while it's good and it's commendable to work hard, it is not good to be mastered by your work. God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, to expand it. But he did not create Adam for the garden. He created Adam for himself. The command for the Sabbath helps us to keep from allowing work to become the idol that it wants to be. It equips us to see beyond the efforts of our own hands, to see that God is the one who's providing for us. It shows us, that the, it shows us really the reality that Solomon sings in Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2 and he says unless the Lord builds the house those who build it labor in vain unless the Lord watches over the city the watchman stays awake in vain it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil for he gives his beloved sleep God's command to Israel to observe the Sabbath, to keep it holy, was designed to help them put faith into practice. You may remember back to when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, how God fed them with manna, with bread. Each morning the people would go out and they would gather what they needed for the day. If they tried to gather more than what they needed for that day, uh, we see, and, and to put it away, actually we see that the manna bred worms and stank. It rotted before they could eat it. But on the sixth day, God gave the people more manna than what they needed instructing them to gather what they needed for the next day as well. And what they put aside for the Sabbath did not rot and did not grow worms. It remained in order that the people could keep the Sabbath and focus their attention on God. Now after the people entered the promised land, we see that God continued to provide for the needs of his people. The commands of the Sabbath continued on. And though they, they were not to go into their fields to work, they were not to send their children to work, they were not to stick a carrot in front of their ox and make it plow the field while they were gone, they were not to send their servants into the field, they were not to send the sojourner into the field. Everyone was to rest. God called his people to a national rest, to focus on him, and to trust that he was the one who would provide for their needs. The work would be there on Sunday morning, but they were not to do it on that Saturday. 
Besides teaching Israel to trust in him, God gave the Sabbath to his people also to remind them about the way he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. In verses 14 through 15, and this is actually a different explanation than what we are given in Exodus 20, where this is first said. But here we see that God tells the people that they, neither they, nor their families, nor their animals, nor refugees or sojourners who were in the land, nor the servants were to work. Everyone was to rest. And the reason, Moses says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. You suffered under a corrupt king who worked you to death. And the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. God rescued his people from out from under an oppressive regime where they were put to agonizing work and where they were held under the thumb of Pharaoh. God set them free to live and to thrive in a relationship with him where he provided for their every need. So you can see how the Sabbath would play an important role in reminding the people of that. Every week, the people got to stop working. They, they entrusted themselves to their loving king and they rested in his providence. While the rest of the world served false gods and tried to get ahead through their own efforts with the idea that they had to provide for their own needs, Israel got to dwell in the presence of the one true living God who needed nothing from them but gave them everything, including a day to rest on. By observing the Sabbath and keeping it holy, Israel was doing more than just taking a break. They, they were enjoying and delighting in their Lord. When they stopped working, they were actively putting their faith in God, trusting Him to provide, acknowledging that the Lord is the creator and the giver of life, who is right to rule over the comings and the goings of our life, who gives us what we need when we need it. So, I hope you're seeing the deeper meaning of the Sabbath besides a prohibition. This is a positive thing. Something to, to come to the Lord who gives us all things and to rest in Him. There's one more important piece of the puzzle for understanding the significance of this command and this command to observe the Sabbath. And that's that the Sabbath was given by God specifically to Israel as a sign of His covenant with them. Covenants in the Bible are typically accompanied with signs. With Noah, God gave, what did God give? He gave him the rainbow as a sign that he would never again flood the earth. With Abraham, Abraham received the sign of circumcision that was given to him and to all his house. And here, with God's covenant with the nation of Israel, we read in Exodus 31, that God says, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations, as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh he rested and was refreshed. There's that covenant language popping out right there, right? This language that we've seen all through the book of Deuteronomy. This, is the, this last piece is important to understand the command of the Sabbath because 
it points us ultimately and finally to the ultimate purpose that the Sabbath command was given for, which is that it was intended to prepare the way for Jesus, who is the Lord and the fulfiller of the Sabbath, who brings a more perfect rest to his people. Flip with me for a moment to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 27. I I don't usually have you go other places. I usually just read it for you. But you need to just, you need to see this. So, Matthew, chapter 11, starting in verse 27. Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Be joined to me, and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Those are big, big important words. Jesus is not just saying, hey, come hang out with me and you'll feel good. He is making some massive claims here. Not only has Jesus said here that he has exclusive access to the Father as God the Son, he's also saying that he as the Son has received authority from his Father over all things. Furthermore, he is saying that he is the source of that rest that our souls desire, the very rest which was anticipated and pictured by the Sabbath day. It is not an accident that immediately after Jesus says this, Matthew tells us how Jesus handles two situations regarding the Sabbath with Jesus telling the Pharisees, Have you not read the law? How on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is exercising authority to say that. He can only do that if the Father has given him authority, as he says he has. These are massively important for us to understand the ultimate reason why God gave the Sabbath command and what our relationship to that command is as followers of Christ. D.A. Carson points out that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath is not only a messianic claim of grand proportions, but it raises the possibility of future change or reinterpretation of the Sabbath in precisely the same way as his professed superiority over the temple raises certain possibilities about ritual law. So when we come to Hebrews 4 and we read that the Sabbath rest was actually something that was was meant to point us forward to God's promise of rest, a promise which we enter through faith in Jesus Christ, we're able to see what the ultimate purpose of this day, of this command was. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2. 
verses 16 through 17. He says this, Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or in regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance of the Sabbath belongs to Christ. In the Old Testament, an Israelite who did not observe the Sabbath would be killed under the law. It was a breach of covenant with God. But Paul says that that judgment has passed away now because we do not labor for a righteousness of our own because Christ has arrived. Instead, we rest in a righteousness that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ, a righteousness which is foreign to us naturally, but which is given to us by grace. There's been a lot of debate in Christian circles as to whether or not we are required to keep the Sabbath. After all, the the argument goes, we affirm that we're under all the commandments, so why would we say we're not under this one? Well, given everything we've seen about the Sabbath this morning, about its purpose, and what I've tried to show you about the way that Jesus fulfills that Sabbath, here's, here's where I land on the issue. Despite what some say, Sabbath, the Sabbath, has not been transferred over to Sunday. Okay? None of the New Testament writers ever refer to Sunday as the Sabbath. And it's clear from what we read in the Scriptures that while the early church met regularly together to worship together on the first day of the week, they never did treat it as a replacement for the Sabbath. We only ever hear Sunday being called the Lord's Day, in reference to the way that Jesus had risen from the dead on it. Now, the New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham even goes so far as to say that for the earliest Christians, gathering together on Sunday, which is the first day of the week, was not a substitute for the Sabbath, nor a day of rest, nor related to in any way to the fourth command. Uh, they met together, they worshipped, and they went to work. Now, we follow a, a, a pattern of our own in our own worship where we follow the pattern of the early church where we meet together and we, we worship together each and every Sunday. And that follows the pattern and the example of the church throughout ever since the apostles. So we're, we're well grounded in that. But we need to see a degree of separation between what the Sabbath was and what the Lord's Day is. The rest which the Sabbath was meant to communicate is no longer located in a day any more than the sacrifices were able to make us that our righteousness our righteousness is not located in the blood of bulls or goats or lambs the substance of the Sabbath belongs to the Lord of the Sabbath and Hebrews 4 is very clear we enter that rest through faith in him Jesus is our Sabbath rest And we receive that rest as we receive our righteousness by being joined to him in faith. This is why Paul can write to the church in Rome, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The only way Paul can say that is if something has changed. Because if an Israelite had esteemed all days equally, He would have been killed. The point is this. The hope 
of our salvation is not in coming to church. I'm glad you're here. I get really depressed when I don't see you guys. Although we, we, we need to think, we need to prioritize our gatherings together. But our hope and our righteousness is not in the fact that we're sitting in these blue chairs. Our hope and our righteousness is not in the Bible studies that we attend. It is not in what we do or do not do on any certain day. Our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. In Him, we have not only the form of rest or the shadow of rest, but the very substance of it. So now we get to the practical aspect. So do the Christian, do, as Christians, should we observe the Sabbath? Well, I think the answer is yes and no. Okay? Well, I'll really confuse you here. It's no in the sense that we have been joined to Christ in the new covenant. We are not under the law. But that doesn't mean that we should set aside the wisdom or the purpose of this command. After all, we're instructed by the book of Hebrews not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. There are commands in the New Testament for your responsibility to your fellow believers, which you cannot do unless you are here. Okay? So if you're being obedient to Christ, you've got to be with God's people. You've got to be with the body. Jesus didn't abolish the commands of the law. He fulfilled them. And in so doing, he elevated them. We may not be under the law, but we are under his lordship. Living out the rest that we have in Christ means living in such a way that we reflect our hope in him and honoring Christ with, with, with how we work, with how we rest, and how we approach the priority of worship. Scott Hubbard really does a good, he points out, he said, we may still decide to rest one day in seven. And indeed, wisdom seems to support the practice of imitating God's own six and one pattern. Especially in a day when many can work anytime, anywhere, answering emails after dinner, taking calls on the weekend, we may do well even for one day in seven to say, I worked yesterday, I will work tomorrow, but today I rest and worship. In another sense, Christians should keep this command. The gospel does not point us to a day where we find our rest, but to a person. In declaring that he was the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus also calls us to come to him to find that rest. Our struggle with anxiety and with tiredness can often be traced back to this fleshly way of thinking that we're ultimately in control. By calling us to come to him to find our rest, Jesus calls us to submit ourselves to him. Scott Hubbard also points out that neither the sluggard, someone who's working for the weekend, nor the workaholic, someone who has no weekend, has yet learned to really enjoy the rest of the true Sabbath. So this is a command that affects how we work and how we rest. We rest in Christ, we work for Christ, and we enjoy him. Resting in Christ means living and maintaining a schedule that remembers what Jesus says, that apart from him, we can do nothing. It means honoring God when we work and when we stop our work. It means waking up each morning resolved to do our very best to honor him and whatever he calls us to do. And it means laying our head on our pillow at night, trusting that he is the one who blesses our labor and makes it successful. When we come to God for rest 
through Jesus Christ, we honor him as holy. And that brings us to our second command, which is to honor your parents. Very appropriate, Titus. Thank you. (laughs) Full of jokes today. Honor your father and your mother. You can flip back to Deuteronomy 5 if you've got that spot marked. Moses reminds us and he reminds the people, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It would seem that this command ought to be grouped in that second table or that second category of the law where God commands us to regard uh, how we regard him and how we treat others and in a sense that's true that's really not the full picture of what's happening here this command is absolutely essential because it is the starting place for all the commands of how we treat others but the language which Moses uses here actually draws a connection to those first three commands of how we how we respond to how we submit ourselves to God the command that comes after this, uh, we can, well, we can see that, that connection in the way that the name of God is used here. We have, as the Lord your God commanded you. We don't have that same pattern in the other commands. The commands that come after this don't follow that same pattern. So this command, I think, stands like a bridge, showing us that obedience to, to God affects the way that we treat others. And that begins in the way we treat our families, especially our parents. Uh, Peter Gentry points out that the command to obey parents then shows that the covenant community of the family is the linchpin that connects loving God to loving others in human society and the community where we first learn covenant love. What does it mean to honor our parents and how is that related to resting in God? Well, to honor your father and your mother certainly carries an idea of respecting them, but it also has an idea of responding to them and specifically their instruction in a way that honors the Lord. That's the key feature, I think, that brings these two commands together about everything we've been seeing about honoring God by resting in Him. In Deuteronomy 6, God gives this key command to parents. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk in the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So God's command to parents is to love him with all that you are. It is to cling to his word. It is to put his word into action. And it is to teach that word to your children. A parent's greatest calling in their life is to live their relationship with God out before their children so that the grace of God and the witness of the gospel are set before them so that they too, in in the hopes that they too, will have a vibrant relationship with God. Now, all of our kids, almost all of you guys are going to get centered out here. Almost all of our kids are, are out. But, on all these, you're here. Your command, God commands you to honor your father and your mother. Here's the great thing about this. You're all children of parents, too. Just because you're out of the house at 18 or whatever age doesn't mean that this command gets suspended. You're still called to honor your parents. 
Now, the reason we see this command comes with a promise is because of that connection to the covenant commands and the covenant promises and the blessings come accordingly. They're received by faith as well. Now, I know as I say this, this, as we talk about this command, not all of you have godly parents. Not all of you learn the love of Christ from your parents. Many of you maybe learned the love of Christ and the blessing of the gospel in spite of your parents, not because of them. And because of that, maybe some of you have bitterness built up in your heart against them. You love them, but there is just this feeling of being wronged. Maybe this command is a real struggle for you because of that. Or maybe you're a teenager and the authority of your parents just feels kind of oppressive right now. Here's the thing. There's not an exception clause to this command. I have looked through the scriptures and I can't find one. God knew what he was doing when he put you in the family that he put you in. He did not make mistakes. He appointed your family and he called them. As a child, your duty is not to judge your father or your mother. Your duty is to honor them. They are the authority in your life. As you get older and you become an adult, they remain a, a kind of authority in your life. And they will answer for how they use that authority. At the same time, the fact of the matter is that when you buck against them, you are not ultimately bucking against them, but you're bucking against the one who gave them that authority and gave them that calling. Honoring your father and your mother is ultimately a matter of honoring God. He gives authority and he takes it away. And because of that, let me tell you, some of you have some repenting to do this afternoon. Not everything that your parents or your parents-in-law do or say is right. But that does not change the responsibility you, you have as their child to honor them. You have a duty to treat them in a manner that is worthy of Christ. If you can't do that, what makes you think you're going to treat your, your neighbor in a way that's honorable? What makes you think that you're going to treat your fellow brother or sister in Christ better if you treat your siblings in an unworthy manner? Here's, here's where resting in Christ and honoring your father and your mother really collide. Resting in Christ means we have submitted to him by faith. He rules, he reigns as king in our lives and as our Lord. And as our king and as our Lord, Jesus commands us to honor our father and mother. He commands us to put their needs before our own. In Mark 7, 9 through 13, we see how Jesus actually condemned the Pharisees and the scribes for this practice they had instituted in having a way to get around having to care for their parents by saying that the money that they had was dedicated to God. So what was going on in this day and time? There weren't retirement plans. Children were your retirement plan. And so the Pharisees and the scribes had found a way to say, all right, look, I really don't want to give my money up to, to help my, my parents. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, this is God's money, and I can't spend it on you. Sorry about that. This is, this is more important. And Jesus to them says, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. Notice these are adults, okay? These aren't kids. These are adults. Honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. 
But you say, if a man tells his father and his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. You cannot say that you are submitting to God and resting in Christ if you are actively failing your fellow, to, to love your fellow men, let alone your father and mother. As John writes, we love because he first loved us. And if anyone says, I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, does not love his, he who, is, who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Loving your parents is that first place where that happens. Honoring your parents is where loving your brother starts. If the command to honor your parents is the bridge between loving God and loving your neighbor, then it is all the more important that we are careful to make sure we obey it. Now that is not to say we obey our parents to do things that are dishonoring to God, but it is to say that we must treat our parents in a way that honors God and does what He commands. To listen to them, to honor them, to respect them even if we disagree with them to treat them according to the, their office and their authority, knowing that they will, they will give an account for how they use that authority. Resting in the Lord and praying for them to be obedient to the Lord and inc incorporating them into our own lives to see what they are doing, to, to let them see how we are honoring God. Now, for some of you, that is going to be a real challenge. And that's why I think it's so important and essential that in order to do this, we see we must first and foremost rest in Christ. When we rest in Christ and we trust Him to provide for our insufficiencies, then we are better equipped to treat others with the love and the respect that He calls us to do. Indeed, this is the only way that can happen. There is no act of love. There is no act of mercy. There is no act of obedience we can do apart from the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Now, we've looked at two commands today. I hope they are helpful for what we have. We've unpacked them. I hope that we've seen how we're called to rest in God and how we're called to honor God, especially on how we honor our parents. I hope that in doing so, your appreciation for what God was preparing for his people has been deepened. But I also pray that, that God, by his grace, will equip you in the coming week to rest in him and to honor him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you, you, you do recognize, you, you know the coming, our comings and our going. You know the struggles. You know our work. And you call to us and say and that you, you hold out rest to us in Christ. And Father, I pray that this morning we would indeed, if there's someone here who has not entered that rest yet, who has not trusted in Christ as their Savior, that they will do that this morning. Father, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, I pray that you would teach our hearts to rest in you and to honor those who you call us to honor. Father, I pray that we would live in obedience to you even as we rest in the grace that we have in King Jesus. And I pray, Father, that as we give you, give you thanks this week, as we prepare for Thanksgiving, as we prepare to see family, I pray that this would just be an extra sweet time for us as we rest in, the, in your work in our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.